Hi, this is Ben Lowell. Merry Christmas and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, Christmas in the First Testament, in a message called Christmas in the Minor Prophets. So let's grab our Bibles and get ready and join Dr. Newfeld now. When Jesus had been born and after the shepherds had visited and left, at the end of eight days, he was circumcised according to the law of the Lord. Another 33 days later, when he was 40 days old, when the days of Mary's purification were completed, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem to present the child before the Lord and to offer up a sacrifice as was required from the law. And so the baby Jesus made his very first trip to the temple in Jerusalem. It is, I think, an important moment in time. And in order to understand how significant that moment was, let's examine the drama of the temple from the First Testament. You know, most Christians are aware that it was Solomon who oversaw the building of the temple. That was completed in the year 957 B.C. It was established as the only place where sacrifices and offerings were permitted in Israel. Three times a year, at Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, all Israel was to journey to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. The book of Psalms is filled with songs of praise for the temple. Psalm 122 verse 1 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That is, one of the pilgrimage feasts was about to begin, and the thought of journeying to the temple filled the psalmist with delight. Psalm 18 verse 6 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. See, that's it. The temple is the dwelling place of God. Psalm 27 verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Or listen to Psalm 63, verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Or think of the prayer to God from Psalm 43, verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Indeed, this is very basically the theology of the temple. It's the one place on earth where God has chosen to reveal his glory. You know, it's not that Israel thought that God was spatially located only there, but it was there at the temple that the everywhere present God had chosen to make himself known. And so the scripture speaks of the temple as the holy dwelling place of God. And it's for that reason that Jeremiah chapter 7 is so shocking. Listen as the chapter opens up, and I'm reading the first four verses, Jeremiah 7, 1 to 4. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What's going on here? Well, the answer is that Jeremiah was decrying the sins of the people of Israel. And he was pulling the rug out from under their feet. See, the people were saying, yeah, it's true, we have our sin problems. But on the other hand, you know, we live next door to the temple of the Lord. 
And we happen to know this is the Lord's dwelling place, and so this temple can't be destroyed. And because of that, we're always going to be safe if we live here, no matter how we behave or how great our sins become. The temple will protect us. To that, Jeremiah gave a response. He said, go to Shiloh, to the place where the tabernacle used to be, and have a look at what God did to that place. He devastated the place for the evil that was done there. Then to Jeremiah 7, 14 and 15, Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight. And so Jeremiah says, God's going to pull this temple down. And everyone said, that's just impossible. This is the temple of the Lord. Of course, they were wrong. The Babylonians entered Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. It was gone. All that was left on that holy hill was a ruined, smoking mass. The survivors were shocked. And 70 years later, the first group of exiles was allowed to come back to Jerusalem. And it was 538 B.C. The place was still a ruin when the priest Ezra and the others were returning. But soon after the return, they wanted to celebrate the Day of Atonement. But how do they do that? And so they found the Temple Mount, the mound where the temple had once stood. And they constructed an altar there out in the open, and they offered sacrifices on it. They had not offered up any sacrifices and offerings for 70 years because there was no temple. Remember, God had specifically said, you can't offer up sacrifices in any old place, only at the temple. But now they offered up sacrifices on the mound where the temple had once stood, and they thought that mound must be sacred. And by the way, in case you've ever wondered why modern-day Orthodox Jews don't sacrifice, as was commanded in the First Testament, well, that's the reason. You may only offer sacrifices at the temple, and right now, the Dome of the Rock stands where that ancient temple once stood. But I fear I'm getting distracted. Let's go back to the exiles in 538 B.C., coming back to offer sacrifices at the Temple Mount. In the second year after they came, they decided to begin to rebuild the temple. And so, as is the case in any building project, the first order of business was to lay the foundation, and that they did. And once the foundation was laid, they decided to have a worship service and celebrate the foundation. And they sang together. They worshiped singing, God is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. But what happened next tells us something of the mood of the people. And here I'm reading Ezra chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted loud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So that was the response. Some people, the younger ones, shouted with joy, and the older ones were weeping. So what was going on? Well, there were two prophets who prophesied during that time. They were Haggai and Zechariah. So we're going to begin with Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3 records the prophet saying, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And then later on, Haggai repeats that when he speaks to the builders. Who's left among you, who asks, who saw the former glory of that temple? Is the work you're up to as nothing in your eyes? 
Do you think it's insignificant? And that was the issue. The old men remembered the glory of the former temple, and now as the foundation of the new temple was being laid, outlining its footprint, they recognized instantly that this thing they were building was going to be a faint whisper of the earlier one. This was going to look like a cheap one, lacking in splendor, while the other one looked like a fitting representation of the Lord's glory, and so they wept while the others were rejoicing. It's an easy response for anyone. You know, if you've lost something precious in your life, something that's now gone forever, you can identify with this response. You might be glad for what you now have, but it's not the same as what you once had. And now whatever grace God has given you today, well, it seems like a small thing compared to what you once had. That reaction is sometimes true of people who've, you know, lost a loved one or who have been demoted at work or who have suffered some severe financial collapse or, or who've lost their reputation. Whatever you now have is so small compared to those days when, you know, the sun shone on your shoulders and all the men and women spoke well of you. Now that you've lost that, you weep, even though when some blessing comes your way, you're reminded of what you've lost even in the blessing. But of course, that's not the response of faith. If you're still weeping years after your loss, you've not come to acknowledge the sovereign grace of God, nor have you inquired of what God is doing when you suffered the loss. And you also don't recognize what God's doing right now. Your eyes are blinded by your loss. Your faith has evaporated and you simply can't see. So Haggai has something to say to the weepers. Listen to Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And that was the promise. The house that Solomon built was magnificent, but, you know, doesn't even hold a candle to this very moment. If you only knew what God was planning to do in this house, well now, you ain't seen nothing yet. Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada, wishing you all the joy, hope, and wonder of the season. While the trees go up, lights are hung, and the house smells of delicious baked goods, many of us find ourselves celebrating apart from our families this year. This Christmas season may look and even feel different, but nothing can diminish the message of hope that Christ brings. When darkness was deepest, God sent a Savior. The coming of Jesus was and is the arrival of ultimate hope in a world that has lost its hope. That is the greatest message of good news and great joy to all people. It's why we can genuinely say Merry Christmas. We're so thankful for our Back to the Bible Canada family. Your partnership makes this ministry possible. To support these Bible teaching efforts this month, please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. The story of Christmas can't really be appreciated until we see what the prophets had to say about the second temple. That is, that temple that Mary and Joseph took baby Jesus to. Now, it has to be admitted, that the house that was built in the time of Haggai had to be enlarged and beautified by the time that Jesus arrived there. Herod the Great was the builder, and as a cruel and evil as he was, 
He took it upon himself, some say, just to gain the favor of the Jews, but he was going to beautify the temple. But by the time of Jesus, the work was still ongoing. And in fact, the work was never completed. That is, not until the the Romans destroyed the second temple. And that in itself is a fascinating story. But Haggai had said that the glory of the second temple would far outshine the glory of the first one. And we might ask how. Now, in order to explain that properly, we have to go forward by about 90 years. And I'm cheating here, not keeping things chronologically sound. But what I'm going to show you is the fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy. The glory of the second temple will be greater than the first. So I'm going to read Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, who's coming? Well, the answer is the Lord whom you seek. The great ruler you so desperately want is coming. And to the Jewish mind, that can only mean one thing. The Messiah would come to the second temple. That's why the glory of the house you're building is so significant. Now, if you and I, the readers of our Bible, know about this, suddenly, you know, the Christmas story becomes fascinating. Jesus is brought to the temple, a fulfillment of what both Haggai and Malachi promised. Now, clearly, the significant coming will be the day he rides to Jerusalem seated on a donkey, the day we celebrate at Palm Sunday and what Zechariah promised us. But that does not take away from the significance of that first moment when a couple, I'm sure no one took note of, arrived at the temple to present their firstborn son to the Lord. Not everyone missed the significance of that moment. You know, Luke, the historian, tells us there was at that time an older man by the name of Simeon. It had been revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So he grew older and he waited. He was righteous, says Luke, and he was devout. And so where would this man expect to see the Messiah? On the street somewhere? Well, perhaps. But there was one place where he couldn't miss him. Simeon would know of the prophecies of Haggai and Malachi, and so this was the place to wait. The glory of this house would be greater than the glory of the first house because, as Haggai had said, the desired of all nations would come to this house. And as Malachi had said, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to this temple. And now there he was. And then came that moment when Mary and Joseph, a poor couple, among all the other throngs that came to the daily temple to worship. These were coming to bring their firstborn. And says Luke, on that day, the Holy Spirit was directing Simeon, go to the temple. And as he goes among the throng, the Holy Spirit says, there, right there, look, that couple over there, they're holding the Lord's Messiah. They're holding the hope of the whole world. And so he approached the couple and took the baby from them and held it in his arms. And he began to prophesy, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This, O Lord, I know who this is. This is the light that the darkened Gentiles have been waiting for, and this is the glory of your people Israel. And as he says those words, we know that Haggai's words have come true. For as we know, the glory of the first temple had been significant. Solomon had dedicated it, and on that day he prayed that that God would always be among his people to hear their prayers. And on that day, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests couldn't stand to minister because of the cloud that filled the glory of the temple. 
And we might also remember of Isaiah the prophet being in that very temple. And he says, I saw the Lord and the Lord's robe filled the temple and the seraphim were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And we might remember how the commanders of the Assyrian army were looking to destroy Jerusalem and how they sent King Hezekiah a letter ridiculing Israel's God. Do you remember that incident? King Hezekiah entered into the first temple and he spread out those letters before God and then stretched out his hands before his maker and he prayed. And do you remember how the Lord responded from his holy house? He sent his angel to put to death 185,000 Assyrian troops. Oh yeah, there was glory in the first temple. But what could be compared to the day when Simeon approached the temple and there in the temple courts, he held in his hands the one who would be the savior of the world? What glory could the first temple boast that was even close to the glory that Simeon saw that day? And that's one of the lessons of Christmas. No matter what glory can be attached to anything, the presence of Jesus overshadows all other glories. If you're a person who weeps over what was lost, weep no more. For Jesus not only restores, but the latter years are the greatest years. You know, the story of Israel is a story of failure and suffering. It's the story of Israel's sins and the price Israel paid for forsaking the Lord their God and clinging to the idolatry that they clung to and, and a host of other sins as well. It is, I think, quite possible to read the First Testament as the account of what might have been but didn't happen. Instead, sorrow and failure and grief and suffering. And I know of many people whose individual lives sound a great deal like, you know, the story of Israel. A frequent refrain in their lives is the refrain, if only, if only this hadn't happened, if only that hadn't happened, were it not for my mistakes, I might be so much better off than I am today. But when we think that way, we really do fail to see the hand of God. You see, the story of the First Testament is not a story of what could have happened if only Israel had been faithful. The fact is they were unfaithful. That's undeniable. The fact is they did suffer for their sins. That's also undeniable. But the First Testament story is the story of God's plan to send his Redeemer, his Savior, into the world. It's the story of redemption, not the living of an ideal life. And so it is with you, my friend. Spend your lifetime bemoaning what might have been, and you betray that you don't understand what God's design for your life should be. You were created to be the object of the greatest rescue plan the earth has ever seen, and that's the story of Christmas. But let's get back to Haggai. We noted at the time when the foundations of the second temple were laid that the people wept bitterly. All they had was a hole in the ground and some stones that made the foundation. But they had a promise. The glory of this house would make the other one seem like nothing. And Zechariah, his companion, joined him in the fight. Zechariah had messages for a number of the leaders of Israel. One was his word to the high priest at that time, a man named Joshua. Zechariah 3 verse 8, the prophet promises the high priest that God will bring his servant to his house, a servant he calls the branch. Well now, Joshua knew what that meant. The branch came from Isaiah. It was the shoot that would come from the fallen stump of Jesse. It was the Messiah. And here's Zechariah encouraging the high priest with these words. Indeed, in the very next verse, in Zechariah 3 verse 9, he says, In this temple, 
God will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. Oh my, the sin question will be fundamentally dealt with right here. Indeed, added to that promise of the branch who comes to take away sins comes Zechariah 6, 12 to 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And that's a fascinating prophecy. How does the Messiah build the temple? Zechariah leaves the question unanswered. But then we come to John chapter 2. In the first year of his ministry, for the first time, Jesus drives out the money changers from the temple. The religious leaders are outraged. Give us a sign, they say, to prove you have authority to do this over the temple. And Jesus responded, tear this temple down in three days, I will raise it up. And John says the temple he spoke of was his body. And that's Christmas. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And the second temple was destroyed by the Romans. But the third temple, that's the temple of the raised body of Jesus, who is the presence of God among us. God has come to us in the form of Jesus. His glory outshines all of the other temples, for he comes as Emmanuel, God with us. In his name, we can approach the Holy of Holies, and through him, we have been made clean so that we are acceptable before God. It's a fitting thing to remember all of this at Christmas time. Our temple, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, stands forever, for he lives forever by the power of an indestructible life. He is God who has come to us. May we approach the Lord with boldness. Have a Merry Christmas. John, thanks so much. I'm just wondering this year, this Christmas, what is it that's consuming your thoughts during this season? Well, of course, this is a very different Christmas than, you know, any of us will have celebrated before uh, because of the COVID restrictions that many of us will not be able to have family and friends in our home and the celebration will feel muted and some of us will feel like it's empty. So that has been consuming my thoughts. But at the same time, uh, what has also been consuming my thoughts is that Christ came into a world of darkness that needed the light. Christmas is hope, and uh, it tells us that the world is not as it should be, that we did need a Savior. So let's remember that. I want to remember that in this less-than-ideal Christmas. It's in less-than-ideal circumstances that the meaning of Christmas is most significant. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. As you know, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to sharing the good news every single day through our radio Bible teaching and a wide variety of audio and video resources. While buying time for radio teaching on stations from coast to coast is costly, it's a cost we believe is of high value. All of our ministries rely on the generosity of people like you, and this month stands out as critical as we look to close the calendar year and strong for the new year ahead. Our goal for December 31st is to raise $376,000 to support our ministry work. Please consider investing in our efforts to help people of all ages and stages to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. 
Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.